coming to you from ACOG's annual meeting in San Francisco. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz for ReachMD, and I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Berger. She's professor and chair of OBGYN at Wake Forest School of Medicine, and she is delivering a lecture that she's actually delivered several years now and knows it better than anybody on the planet, which she has called Saving Grandmother's Brain, a title that I love, but has also been titled Maintaining Midlife Mood, Mind, and Memory, Therapeutic Options. Dr. Sarah Berger, welcome to you. Thank you. So, Dr. Berger, I love the title here. The one that you came up with, of course, is my favorite, Saving Grandmother's Brain. Where did that title come from? What exactly are you talking about here? So there are innumerable anthropology studies that show that having a grandmother actually helps the whole family and helps children thrive, survive, and have a better trajectory in life. And so I got to thinking about, oh, well, you know, how can we make the whole family better? We can make grandmother sharper and better for longer. And so it's not just about her bones. It's not just about her heart. Really, she has to be engaged. So she has to have a, a brain. And are you finding that this is universally applicable across all cultures? Or are you finding it, the evidence is in some countries more than others? Is this mainly U.S. predominant anthropology studies, or is this a global phenomenon? It's a global phenomenon. I mean, it's not the anthropology of it is not my contribution. We published a book called The Parental Brain. And there was a study of a synopsis, really, of all the studies that was published by an uh, anthropologist and really innumerable citations showing that having a healthy grandmother made the whole family healthy. Huh. So it just seemed to me that that's a significant benefit that we underestimate. Yes, yeah, so help me understand that idea of it makes everybody more healthy. In what ways, in what measures are we talking about health in this regard? Well, I think we all know that children don't just grow up by age 18 and that parents, when they become parents, probably don't know what to do all the time. And so having a resource, whether it's a monetary resource or an advice resource or an emotional support resource, um, and that doesn't have to be a grandmother, but a grandmother is really an important feature of most people's families. And so to the extent that grandmother's healthy, she can do the job of nurturing the extended family. I see. And before we kind of get into the specifics of that type of nurturing relationship, and the downstream effects that that has on the younger generations. Tell me a little bit about whether you see that role in families' structures playing out in the United States compared to other countries, because many people will say that the way that the elderly are treated, for instance, in the United States is very different. I see that you, for instance, are wearing a Norwegian brooch, beautifully decorated, and I can think, just as a great comparison, um, people in Norway and other parts of Scandinavia, very different family structures in which the grandparents might play a role versus in numerous uh, parts of the United States. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, wherever I go, I see grandmothers engaged, but mostly because I'm an OBGYN and I see the extended family at the time of the delivery or when a child is sick. Or, you know, many times grandmothers come into the office with teenage children. And sometimes the mom and the teenager are having a bit of an issue, but the grandmother's the person that can hold it together or mm. can be a relatively neutral third party. But I, I think it may be better enshrined concept in other countries, but I don't think, I think it's intuitive and natural, and I don't think you can remove it, even if you try. So it would be better to bolster it, but I'm not sure that even if you neglect it, it won't happen. 
I see. So while some might would argue that in the United States, the elderly are sort of neglected, not just sort of, but really neglected, in your experience working in the OBGYN sector, you see that incredibly important role that mm-hmm. grandparents do play for two generations down. Yeah, I do. I even have grandfathers in the office sometimes with their children and grandchildren. And it could be that where I am right now, the extended family is more supported. But everywhere I've ever been in urban environments as well, it's helpful to have a healthy grandparent um, and, and someone who really wishes well for the entire extended family. So how do we get there to that healthy grandparent? What are some ways in which we can keep grandparents healthy? And it sounds like you're thinking along a few different spectrum. You're thinking along their mood areas. You're thinking psychologically. You're also thinking, I'm sure, physically. What are some of the ways in which you try to maintain good health in grandparents? So, you know, by definition, uh, grandparents are typically post-reproductive. So they're not reproducing actively themselves, but they often play a role in helping the next generation reproduce. And when they go through menopause, women sometimes have what I would say a less engaged mood. They could be a little withdrawn or depressed, not as upbeat. They may feel that they can't think as quickly or as accurately as they once did. They may be a breadwinner for the family and not be able to do their job as well as they once did. So they come into my office and say things like, I just feel foggy. I'm not as sharp as I once was. So when women come into the office, they have these very vague complaints. And if you don't listen, you'll miss it because they often are testing you to see if you're sensitive enough to hear what they're talking about. Mm. They often feel like they're a little bit not right. They're not sure they're not as sharp as they once were. They don't feel like they're as sharp as they once were. And to be honest with you, it can be hard on psychometric testing to show that they can't perform simple tasks. So it's Mm. not about simple tasks. It's uh, feeling less sharp. And that's very hard to define. So we've actually done a deep dive on this to find ways to define it other than simple pencil and paper inventories that we once gave. To get a more refined sense of that cognitive decline, but in, in, in a very minute fashion, rather than, as you, as you put it, the simple tasks. Well, it, it turns out that having memory is important to engagement. Having as rosy a view as is possible is important. One needs to be an optimist to get through life's travails. And being able to do all the things that one needs to do to remain mobile, including have good physical health, are all going to synergize together. So it's not just cognition. It's not just emotion. It's not just motor. It's all of those together lead to a healthier, happier person who can then do what needs to be done, whatever that is. And so more engagement means more nuance, and that's how they feel. And so I've been doing menopause care for about 30 years. It's interesting to watch because the pendulum is swung all over the place, and I think there's a lot of misinformation available and so a lot of fear. And so I end up having to find out what they know what the mythologies are that they've heard and sort of trying to help them sort out what the next steps might be to help them have a healthier brain, essentially. I see. And you mentioned mythology. What kind of myths come into your office frequently that you have to dispel? Well, the biggest myth is that estrogen, which, you know, is a biological substance, and for women, the biological estrogen is estradiol, is a carcinogen. Mm. So that's a very scary thought. It is classified by the FDA as a carcinogen. 
So it's the only biological hormone I know of that's classified as a carcinogen. Testosterone, which is actually implicated in prostate carcinoma, is not classified as a carcinogen, whereas estradiol is. And so that is just a place where very many people are nervous. I mean, other doctors, the patient may have been told by someone, mm. a family member or a physician, that hormones will cause harm. How do you help patients work through that type of fear? Because that is a fear that could really undermine their approach to gaining healthier lives. How do you work with patients? So we are lucky to have different professional organizations undertake a deep dive on some of the topics, including the use of hormones after menopause. And so I usually start by referring to professional guidance from other organizations and showing that there's a lot of disagreement and helping people understand that this is controversial, not settled, and there's probably more to be learned than the one-liner they're seeing in the headline news. Well, let's turn then to the mood side. Yes. Working with patients on mood, what are your therapeutic options there? The whole interesting thing about aging is that it's not your mood that suffers independently from your cognition. And in fact, if mood goes down, cognition goes down. If cognition goes down, mood goes down. I mean, one of the earliest signs of Alzheimer's is emotional lability. So the parts of the brain are not separate silos that function independently. They function synergistically. So we have to help people understand that it is keeping you healthy in general, but keeping your brain healthy. And so the soundbite I start with first is not all women are the same. And I never get much pushback on that. Everybody believes that they're unique. And in fact, they are. So we deal with, you know, what are your special risk factors? What are your special worries? What are the things that you want to achieve? And so once we know what the goals are, and they are individualized, then we start with what do we know? And so one of the first things I start with is not all estrogens are the same. So we do a little mini bio lesson on why they're not the same and how we can give hormones back more intelligently. And I usually reference the use of insulin, where one dose doesn't fit all. And I think it's very easy for almost everybody to understand if you're an insulin-dependent diabetic, too much and too little leads to poor outcomes. Right. And so same for thyroxine for thyroid disease, seven or more doses. And even then, we sometimes have to tailor it, you know, every other day a different dose. So obviously, dose matters and the type of hormone that we give back. I think everybody understands now that the revolution in diabetes care was humulin, was as close to human insulin as one could make, and that that was a whole lot better than giving pig insulin. So same for estradiol. Estradiol is actually manufactured now. It's identical to what our own ovary made, and it can be given in a physiologic-like manner to approximate the missing ovarian function. And you can even give it in lower doses than that. I think when we went to a one-size-fits-all use of a so-called xenoestrogen, an estrogen from another animal or another source, we got a very muddy picture in terms of what estrogens as a class do. So we have to educate about the fact that not all estrogens are the same. And once we've got that done, we can start to talk. <laughs> it takes a little time. And but people are really interested. And so suddenly it's relevant for them. So certainly you're going to get 
a strong buy-in when it comes to more personalized treatment for the patient. I'm sure most patients are probably not going to look at you and say, listen, I just want the algorithm. You know, just, yeah, <laughs> they're yeah, probably going to say, give me something. <laughs> I'll read it myself. <laughs> but do you find that to be a, a particular challenge in treatment, or is that something that actually makes working with patients easier in this respect, being able to tailor your treatment um, on the estrogen side, estrogen replacement therapy, with specific estrogens that will work best for the patient? Well, I have to do a little bit of a primer. I mean, I have some slides that I share, and then I watch them, and I see if they understand, and then I ask them to ask me questions so that we can build a common understanding. And I think that's probably very fundamental because, again, they're not sure if this is going to work for them. They're not sure that it's not more risk than benefit. And so we have to understand the fear part. That's where we started. And then we have to understand that we will titrate this. We will adjust it. We will individualize in a way that makes sense based on the current health of the person in front of us, not some kind of algorithm in the textbook that says all women are the same and all estrogens are the same. And that's what we've inherited. So there's some work to do in doing this. And getting back to the mood question, you had talked about how integrated mood changes and cognitive decline are. Do you ever use one as a predictive marker for the other? If a person, say, comes to you and they've been experiencing some mood fluctuations as of late, do you look at that and say, you know what, there might be some cognitive change here too. i got to do some screening. i got to do some looking out for that. So most people are coming right around the time of menopause, and that's, there's actually studies that show that's when they're most symptomatic. Mm. And that's when they come in, and they're usually pretty fine. They may not be sleeping right. They may be feeling a little off. They may be compensating for some of that, but they typically aren't highly impaired at that point. So we don't have to do, like, a big Alzheimer's disease workup most of the time. We just have to say a lot of this is likely to be hormonal withdrawal. And let's try some repletion to see if you feel better. And there's actually the psychiatric literature is replete with studies showing that for perimenopausal mood disorders, the first line of defense should be repletion of estradiol. So when we give back the missing ovarian hormones, a lot of people feel much better. Like night and day, or is it a very gradual process? It can be night and day. It's not always night and day. It depends on how symptomatic they are. But yes, it can be night and day. More likely, it's going to be, oh, I feel like myself again. And it could be a couple months later. It could be a week later. It depends how symptomatic and how in tuned the individual is. But I have all sorts of fun stories from people coming in and saying, I got my PhD because of you. Not because I was their PhD thesis advisor, but because I gave them back semester dial and they had more insight when they were faster, they could do their work better, they could focus more, their concentration was restored. Oh. Well, before we wrap up, let me ask you just one broad question then. Among the different areas, the sectors, if you will, that, that you consider when you're looking at the patient who's coming to you with maybe engagement problems or uh, memory problems, mood problems, or any sort of combination of the three, because I imagine it's never quite so simple as one, one issue. What is your biggest perennial challenge when working with these patients? What is the, the challenge that you find to be the most difficult to help patients surmount? It's all the other advice they're getting. So, you know, they might go to some other physician and they say, you know, that's going to cause breast cancer. What are you doing? Don't you care? 
you know, stop that now, and then they have to come back, and I have to go over again why the dose that we're giving is safe, how it's likely to support their brain, how uniquely for women, giving back a small amount of estradiol may help the brain. Now, men sometimes feel like, well, I want some too. And it turns out that testosterone is aromatized into estradiol, and the amount of estradiol men and women have pre-reproductive life is identical. And men continue to make that, and so their brain doesn't fall apart at the same rate. Everybody's going to age, so we're not going to completely prevent all aging syndromes. But if we can get at the midlife more successful brain in terms of its ability to function, then honestly everybody does well. And so what we say to the women is, please come back, tell us what you've heard. You know, don't stop without giving us a chance to talk. Well, with that part in common, I very much want to thank Dr. Sarah Berga. She's professor and chair of OBGYN at Wake Forest School of Medicine, and she is delivering a lecture at ACOG's annual meeting in San Francisco devoted to saving grandmother's brain. And, of course, we won't leave the grandfathers out of that <laughs> as well. Again, Dr. Sarah Berga, thanks so much for your time. It's thanks been great. again. To find this episode and other episodes, do visit ReachMD.com. And thanks again for listening.